First Person is produced in cooperation with the Far East Broadcasting Company, who rejoice in the stories of changed lives through the power of Jesus Christ. Learn more at febc.org. It's, it's a great movement, and I've seen a lot of the young men who uh, thought they could reach fulfillment with the fame and money through baseball become Christians and uh, change their lives completely uh, through the baseball chapel. He died in 2010, but baseball announcer Ernie Harwell's life is still influencing players and fans today. Welcome to First Person. I'm Wayne Shepard. With this weekend marking the end of baseball's regular season before the playoffs begin, we're reaching deep into the archive to play an interview with one of the great baseball announcers. Ernie Harwell was a follower of Christ who happened to spend his life in professional baseball. His stories of witnessing some of the great players of the past are matched by a few others, but it was his Christian witness that lives on. This and all of our past programs can be heard at firstpersoninterview.com or use our free smartphone app to download and listen. This interview was done at Moody Radio in Chicago many years ago following Ernie's retirement, and my thanks to Moody for permission to use it today here on First Person. As Ernie and I began talking, I told him that as a boy living in Michigan, I was mesmerized by his play-by-play of the Detroit Tigers, especially 1968 when they won the World Series. Well, those were great days. The uh, Tigers were at the zenith at that time. And, uh, of course, in baseball, there's nothing like winning <laughs> to attract an audience. And we had a great time with the 68 team. Yeah. Now, Ernie, bring us up to date. Are your days in the Tiger booth are finished, right? Uh, that's right. I announced my retirement last uh, February. said that the 2002 season would be my final one. And uh, I got through it and uh, finished up. Uh, with the final game in Toronto against the Blue Jays uh, at that uh, big stadium there. And uh, now I'm uh, relaxing and putting my feet up when my wife runs a vacuum cleaner. <laughs> what was calling that last game like for you? Was it any different anyway? It was a little bit different because I knew I'd never broadcast another game. And uh, after a long, long time, like 55 years, I, it had been certainly a part of my life. But I knew that God had a new adventure for me, and I was ready to look forward to it. Hmm. Do you like the word retirement? I don't like the word retirement, no. I think it's a bad word. I don't think I'm really retired because I've got a lot of other things to do. I'm going in another direction and uh, put my energies uh, uh, to work uh, in another way, but I'm not really retired. Mm -hmm. Of course, uh, this time it was your choice to leave the booth. There was a time a few years ago when someone else made that choice for you. Absolutely. That was in uh, December of uh, 1990. The uh, Tigers had told me that I would work for one more year and then I'd be through, and I made the announcement of the press conference. And uh, for the uh, season of 91, I continued on with the Tigers, and then after that, I was, as we say, in show business at Liberty, and I did the uh, CBS Game of the Week as well as some other things. I worked a little bit for the Angels in the California. I wasn't uh, inactive, but I didn't uh, uh, continue as a Tiger announcer at that time. You know, that whole uh, episode is really now a textbook case of uh, how, to, uh, how to do public relations because that, I mean, from my perspective, that was uh, messed up pretty badly. Well, it was a... It was a misread, I think, of uh, what the radio and baseball uh, uh, welded together meant to a region. Uh, not so much uh, the announcer as the fact that um, when somebody comes in and establishes himself as the announcer for four or five years, people get used to them. 
and an abrupt change is something that uh, they don't like to see. And uh, I was uh, just happened to be in the announcer's seat at that time. Hmm. Well, I think you're very humble in saying that. I, baseball is a game that's based on tradition, and I think that extended to the broadcast booth. Uh, let's just run the details real quick for those who don't know. Um, you were unceremoniously dropped uh, as the Tiger baseball announcer, and the uh, the entire state of Michigan almost erupted in, re- <laughs> in reaction. I, I lived in Chicago, and boy, I tell you, we felt the, felt the reverberations all the way across the lake. Well, you know, it's a great example of a Romans 828. I think that things do work together for good because um, in the long run, just from a secular and, and uh, career standpoint, I think it was a good thing that it happened. It uh, attracted some attention to me that I might not otherwise had uh, accrued. And uh, it didn't really bother me as much as it did a lot of people. I knew that God was in charge. I didn't have any feeling of bitterness or uh, acrimony about it, and I knew that things were going to work out good. Uh, One of the problems we had at the time was my wife Lula had just heard at the same time that she had breast cancer, Mm. and uh, we didn't uh, say anything about it because uh, we were in such a critical spot that the people uh, were putting us in the paper all the time and on the air, and we felt like, Lula and I felt like, that if we uh, announced that she had the breast cancer, that uh, people would say, well, here's another here's another effort for these two folks to try to get a little more public sympathy. So nobody even found out about it until the next spring. She had to take radiation treatment all uh, through mm. the next year. So you spent one year out of the booth, right? Uh, that's true. One year out of the Tiger booth, right. And uh, did the, cha- the ownership change? What brought you back? Well, what brought me back was when uh, Mike Illich uh, bought the team uh, from uh, Tom Monahan, one pizza owner, uh, uh, delivering the <laughs> <laughs> the team to another pizza owner in His thirty minutes or less, right? He'd bring me back as a voice of the Tigers. So I owe a great deal to Mike Illich because otherwise I still would have been uh, not doing uh, the Tiger games the rest of my career. But he brought me back and and said at that time he said you you're back on your terms now and you can stay as long as you want to and when you feel like leaving you just let me know and we'll make the adjustment. Hmm. Ernie, anyone who knows you knows that you're a very warm and gracious man. And, and as you said, you didn't get bitter, but at the same time, you're human. You, you must have been carrying around a few feelings about that whole episode. From a business standpoint, I knew that anybody who has been hired has a right to be fired. There's no question there. And I also just knew that I had to forgive. Uh, uh, in, in God's eyes, I had to seek forgiveness and, and not the carrying a bitterness about this and uh, just let it go at that. So that was my attitude. I tried to do that and and uh, try to work my way through it. I saw my first uh, Major League game in Chicago. I went up to the World's Fair in the 1934. My uncle, he uh, took me to my first ball game in 1934. It was September, and the Yankees were in town. It was the final game that Babe Ruth played in the American League in Chicago at Old Comiskey Park. Ted Lyons, the Hall of Fame pitcher on the mound for Chicago, and Red Ruffing, the Hall of Fame pitcher for New York, tied up in a pitcher's duel. Lou Gehrig played first base. Wow. And uh, Lou Gehrig got a couple of triple, uh, a couple of doubles that day that I've never seen happen before. Each time he ducked an inside fastball, the ball ricocheted off his bat over the third baseman's head twice in one game. And uh, Gehrig, of course, was a great player, the iron horse before uh, Cal Ripken took over that title. And the Babe played the left field. 
Babe Ruth uh, always played the field that was not the sun field. And in Comiskey, the sun field was right field, so they put him in left, and he made a great running catch in foul territory that final game that he played in Chicago in the American League. But that wasn't the first time you ever saw or even met Babe Ruth, was it? Well, I, I met the Babe uh, a little bit earlier than that when he signed my shoe. That was the title of one of my books, The Babe Signed My Shoe. <laughs> and that happened when I was a kid in Atlanta. I was about 10 years old at that time. And I went out to Pontsylvania Park one March when the Yankees were coming north after spring training. And they played my team, the Atlanta Crackers, which was a team in the Southern League. About the ninth inning, I sneaked down to the box seats there at the railing, and uh, the babe came in from right field to the Yankee dugout. And just before he got to the dugout, I yelled at him and said, Mr. Ruth, Mr. Ruth, can I have your autograph, please? And he looked at me and he said, Kid, you ain't got anything for me to sign. I was so stupid, I didn't have any piece of paper, scorecard, anything. But I did have a, a, a pen, so I said, well, will you sign my shoe? And I put my tennis shoe over the railing, and he signed it with a pen I gave him. Uh, Ernie, you mentioned uh, growing up there in, in Georgia. Um, that first team was the Atlanta Crackers. We'll talk more about that. But I was uh, I guess I didn't know until I read this latest book, maybe I, it, it just escaped me before, that you had a little speech impediment when you were a boy. Well, I did. I, uh, I was tongue-tied, and... Uh, I couldn't uh, say an S or or C-H. A chicken would come out thicken. And my my folks didn't have much money. My dad had multiple sclerosis. And my mom made cakes and sandwiches uh, to support the family. And, and the hardware boys got out and sold a lot of things that people didn't want to buy, you know, like Christmas cards and, and fruit cakes and, and had a paper route. And we tried to scrape up some money. And my family got enough money together to send me to... Uh, what we'd call a speech therapist. And what happened, Wayne, that the kids in Atlanta in the fifth and sixth grade were all required to uh, make a speech or debate at least once a month. But she helped me. Her name was Mrs. Lachlan. And it was sort of, it was sort of crazy because I wrote an article in the uh, Guidepost magazine uh, back in the mid-90s about this. And uh, Mrs. Lachlan got a copy of the magazine and she wrote me from uh, down in Albany, Georgia. At that time, she was about 95 years old. And uh, she sent me a copy of the recital that she still put on with her pupils. She was still teaching at that age. Oh, my goodness. And believe it or not, Wayne, they were still reciting the same old poems that I used to <laughs> learn. Of course, one of the distinctions you have is you were the only broadcaster ever to be traded for a player. You've got to tell that story to well, us. Well, uh, that's true. In 1946, I came out of the Marines. I began to do the Atlanta Cracker Games, my old hometown team. And in 1934, a Red Barber, the great Brooklyn announcer, was on a trip at Pittsburgh, and he became ill. They rushed him to the hospital. They didn't know whether he was going to live or die. And his boss, Branch Rickey, got on the phone and called... Earl Mann, who owned the Atlanta team, and said, I'd like to have Ernie Harwell come up and replace Red Barber as my announcer. And Earl said, well, that's fine, Mr. Ricky, but Ernie's under contract to me, and if you really want him, you make a trade. Uh, you send me your catcher from a Montreal Cliff Dapper, and you can have Ernie. So I was traded for a minor league catcher and got to the big leagues. I went up uh, toward the end of the season. Didn't have any spring training, didn't know the players, just broken absolutely cold. But the people of Brooklyn was great to me. They were very warm and affectionate. 
and uh, received me with open arms and uh, couldn't have been nicer. Recorded before his death in 2010 with Ernie Harwell, one of baseball's greats. We'll continue coming up on First Person. Hi, I'm Ed Cannon, and as you know, situations around the world are changing quickly. Stay current with FEBC's ministry and get a deeper understanding of people who need to find hope. Hear how you can feel the pulse of God's Spirit moving through the hearts of believers dedicated to reaching the lost. Be sure you join me for the podcast until all have heard. Discover how the gospel is making a difference around the world. Search for Until All Have Heard on your favorite podcast platform or hear it online at febc.org. Let's return now to a program from the archive, the late Ernie Harwell, one of baseball's great announcers. Here's a sidebar question. How do you remember all those details about all those games so long ago? Well, I think the fact that I was there, you know, in person, I didn't read about it. And it was uh, sort of a a very significant uh, time in my career. And then a fact that I probably repeat from time to time, and it uh, gets ingrained in my brain. But you always repeat it accurately, correct? Well, I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't grow with time? (laughs) Sometimes you embellish. So you're in Brooklyn with the Dodgers. Um, Red Barber eventually came back then to the booth. Mm -hmm. And you were number two man, or how did that work out? Well, I was actually number three. Connie Desmond, the fellow that I worked with when Red was out, was number one because he'd been Red's number two announcer. And then we worked with three guys. And then the next year, 1949, there were three of us. But uh, we also had TV to do. So uh, we uh, switched around the three of us on the radio and TV. Boy, that was early for television, wasn't it? Oh, it was. Television had really started about the 47 or 8. And it was beginning to almost equal with radio about that time. But it was still fairly primitive. Almost like doing a radio cast with a couple of cameras around. We hmm. we didn't have the replay. We didn't have any of the. Hmm. But then you did the unthinkable. You you crossed over to the Giants. Now remember those listening <laughs> younger that the Dodgers and the Giants were both New York based teams. Well, that's true, and they hated each other. It was uh, probably the most uh, uh, most bitter rival that you could find in any sports. And uh, But uh, Leo DeRocha, the manager for the Dodgers, had made that jump across the river uh, that same season, a good bit before I did. So it, uh, he had been a pathfinder. And, of course, the, I was very insignificant compared to Leo because he was a manager, and I was just a rookie announcer, and I don't think uh, anybody uh, really paid a whole lot of attention to the fact that I left and went to the Giants. <laughs> and what's this about you and Leo getting into a fight one time? I mean, you're such a gentle spirit, I can't imagine that <laughs> happening. <laughs> well, that did happen, and uh, uh, we, were, we were coming back from uh, Chicago on the, uh, on the train, and uh, Russ Hodges and I were sitting in uh, his compartment, and I was reading the paper. We'd finished our breakfast and relaxing. And I'd have to preface my story by the fact that uh, Leo DeRocha was the kind of a guy who always liked to have a stooge. And if uh, you allowed him to, to make you his uh, stooge, he would make it for the rest of uh, your career. So I tried to keep my distance with Leo, although we were on pretty good terms. And he came into the compartment. I was reading the paper, and he sort of slapped it back into my face. And I didn't know whether he was kidding or serious, but I grabbed him. And we had a wrestling match. It was sort of friendly, I guess. And we huffed and puffed. And finally, I think inertia set in, and we both sat down and, and uh, laughed about it. But 
It wasn't much of a fight as fights go. <laughs> so it didn't uh, didn't hurt your relationship for years oh, no, after. We got along fine. I loved I, I loved being around Leo. He was a very personable, charming kind of a guy. He'd come into the room. He'd charm everybody in it. But uh, you never know what was coming next from Leo DeRocher. I don't know where to stop asking these stories, Ernie, but when you announced for the Giants, is that when Bobby Thompson's home run happened? That's right. I was on the TV that day, October the 3rd, 1951, and Wayne, my partner, was Russ Hodges, and uh, there were five different radio broadcasts, and Russ was going to do one of them. And I sort of felt sorry for poor old Russ. I told myself he'd get lost on the radio, and... I was going to be on TV, NBC TV, Coast to Coast. It was the first sports series ever telecast Coast to Coast. That is, you could see it simultaneously on the West Coast and what was happening in New York. Before that, you had to tape it and send it out there. So I figured I had the better assignment. Well, the Lord works wonders, and it turned out that Russ Hodges' call was recorded. The Giants win the pennant. The Giants win the pennant. Became one of the most famous of all time, and there were no recordings or replays or anything else on TV, and only my wife Lulu and I know I was on that afternoon. <laughs> Ernie, when did you meet the Lord? 1961, actually. It was um, in the spring training in the Cooperstown. I'd grown up in a so-called Christian family. My mom and dad uh, went to uh, Sunday school and the church, and we had a feeling that if... Um, we stayed out of everybody's way, did a few good deeds, we'd get to heaven. I don't think we really uh, realized that we had to uh, surrender to Jesus. I don't think we went that far. In those days, the fashion was to sort of keep quiet about your Christianity. And uh, that was uh, the kind of a Christian I was, sort of a closet Christian. Well, what were the circumstances that caused you to think differently? Well, I, I, I was in spring training by myself, and something told me to go over to a Sunday service at uh, an Easter Sunday, as a matter of fact, uh, right outside of Lakeland at Bartow, Florida, conducted by Billy Graham. And uh, the, uh, the message that day moved me, and uh, when the invitation came, I walked down the aisle and uh, dedicated my life to Jesus. And uh, I think it had been a slow process. I'd been... I've been approaching that for a long, long time, and I finally decided that uh, it took complete surrender. Hmm. And then that changed my life. It put my priorities in, straight, in, in shape. Uh, God told me, you know, that the most, thing, uh, most important thing was to uh, follow uh, his, his precepts and, and to seek the kingdom of God. It's referred to in uh, Matthew, uh, what is it, 633, I believe. Mm-hmm. Right. And... Uh, then uh, also he taught me that my problems uh, uh, would be numerous, but he would be there to help me. Mm. And, of course, he gave me that peace that's referred to in Philippians 4.7. And uh, I think over the years, uh, knowing I'm a sinner, I fall back. I'm short of the glory of God like all of us. But I keep trying, and I try to walk with him. Mm. You know, I know you're not real comfortable talking about this because you don't like the spotlight on yourself, but I, I have to tell you that one of the most touching moments of reading your book, Ernie, was when, I think it was ESPN came to record a television interview with you, and you kind of put them on hold to take an important telephone call. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was a very strange thing. Warner Fussell came out to do a story for ESPN, and he and the uh, photographer were uh, seated with me at the uh, kitchen table, and the phone rang. And it was a nurse, and she said, I've got a young man here that uh, is thinking about committing suicide. Hmm. 
and uh, I, he he talked about you, and I said, why don't you call him? So we're getting in touch with you, and and could you speak with him? And I got on the phone, and uh, <laughs> the first question he asked me something about the trammel was trammel better than Whitaker or something <laughs> like that. I forgot exactly what it was, but uh, he he was really uh, taken getting ready to take his own life because he was so down and, mm. and depressed about everything. And here he is asking a baseball question. Mm. <laughs> and I told Warren, I said, that just shows you the power of baseball. You know, he's a guy that you at the crisis of his life, and he's, he's arguing about the, uh, the ability of a couple of ball players. Mm. Mm. But uh, he, he, did not, uh, he did not commit suicide, and I think things worked out okay for him. Yeah, I remember reading in your book of your expression to him that uh, even when it seems like nobody cares, the Lord is the one who does care Yeah, for I told him, him God loved him, and no matter what happened, uh, to remember that. You mentioned your involvement with baseball chapels. Actually, I think you were instrumental in starting baseball chapels, weren't you? Well, I was one of the beginners. It sort of started by accident. I don't think anybody started it. The genesis of it was that um, in uh, in Chicago and Minnesota, some of the players uh, on those two teams began to uh, ask a speaker to come in and uh, talk at the hotel. They'd bring their wives in, and they'd have some uh, orange juice and coffee, and maybe four or five players would gather, and somebody would come in from the outskirts and would uh, uh, make a speech and, you know, make a little presentation, a Christian presentation. And then uh, Waddy Sposter, uh, a sports writer in Detroit, got interested in the Detroit area, and he and I began uh, the same thing in Detroit. And then I suggested that uh, I thought it would be better uh, if the players could have their chapel at the ballpark because Sunday is always a getaway day most of the time in the major leagues, and the players are very concerned about getting packed up getting checked out of the hotel, getting breakfast, getting on the bus. And well, didn't Mickey Mantle and someone else get mobbed at a church one time or something? Well, or? they did one time, yeah. That's another reason that they had. The, the, it got to be some of the superstars would go to church, and they had no privacy at all. People would ask for autographs. and So it was a lot easier just to take the uh, chapel out to the ballpark where the players could be in their own environment and sit around, you know, halfway dressed or in uniforms or whatever and listen to a speaker, and uh, that's what he eventually evolved. And then uh, Waddy went to the commissioner and got some uh, uh, official sanction of the baseball chapel, plus uh, some donations from baseball, and I think that helped a little bit. So now it has uh, it permeated all the other sports. It's in uh, football and auto racing and uh, everything else. So it's, it's a great movement, and I've seen a lot of the young men who uh, thought they could reach fulfillment with the fame and money uh, through baseball, uh, become Christians and uh, change their lives completely uh, through the baseball chapel. And not just young men. How about the story of Mickey Mantle at the end of his life? Well, Mickey Mantle at the end of his life, yeah, finally gave his uh, uh, life to Christ. I think Bobby Richardson called on him in his final days. Mm -hmm. He turned his life over to Jesus and uh, and died as a born-again Christian. (laughs) Great story. Our guest has written several books, including Ernie Harwell, My 60 Years in Baseball, where he tells even more of these great stories surrounding baseball. We'll place a link to the book at firstpersoninterview.com. You can also listen again or share it with a friend at firstpersoninterview.com or use our free smartphone app. And this program is also released as a podcast. Just search any podcast app for First Person with Wayne Shepherd. A word of thanks to the Far East Broadcasting Company for making First Person possible. FEBC is committed to taking Christ to the world through radio and new avenues of media. 
and they have a long track record of success in reaching a large part of the world. Learn more by listening to the podcast until all have heard on many podcast apps or at febc.org. Now with thanks to my friend and producer, Joe Carlson, I'm Wayne Shepard. Thanks for listening to First Person. First Person.